Taylor Goering, the Director of Technology at the Ethereum Foundation, joins me today for a quick update about Homestead. Thanks for joining me, Taylor. Glad to be here. So, yeah, could you tell us about what's going on with uh, over at the Ethereum Foundation, uh, what kind of development advances there have been recently, and uh, what's going on with the upcoming Homestead release? Sure. Yeah, so there's a lot of work going on. Uh, we had a bit of a reprieve during the holidays, and people are kind of getting back to it now. A lot of effort is being put into research for proof of stake in Casper uh, for longer term. Uh, but in the near term, we're working on getting Homestead out the door. Uh, and there's three specific changes for that. Uh, those are being finalized now and should be rolling out pretty soon. Uh, so what are, those, uh, what are those changes specifically? Uh, the changes are very low-level protocol type changes. Most developers uh, who are building dApps on Ethereum won't have to worry about them so much. Uh, there are some changes to the opcodes that are used in the Ethereum virtual machine. And there's also been a small networking change kind of added in towards the end here, which will make it easier to do network changes in the future. So they're calling it forward compatibility network changes. Awesome. Awesome. So all good news then. Yeah, really great news. It's uh, moving quite quickly. What can we expect with Homestead? I mean, how far away is it and how will it change? Uh, how is it different from the Frontier release that we've been working with recently? Sure. So there's a couple components to Homestead. Uh, one is the core protocol level changes, and that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks here, hopefully. Uh, that's what's being tested now. Concurrently, there were client changes being worked on, improvements to user-facing type applications. Uh, so the light synchronization, state tree pruning, uh, improvements to the key store, things that the end user will likely kind of interact with. And that will roll out shortly after the protocol upgrades. In terms of what's actually different from Frontier, um, there's not a whole lot different. We actually expected a few more changes between Frontier and Homestead, but we were really fortunate that Frontier was relatively stable and some of the precautions that we wanted to put in place uh, were not even necessary. So um, this is really more of a change from kind of unstable to now we've hit a million blocks, we've got dApps building on it, the clients are more robust. And now we're recommending it for general usage once Homestead is actually out the door. Fantastic. So this is really just almost, it seems like this is almost a formality. Um, yeah, I mean, it's necessary changes. The kinds of things that we're adding in are direct responses to developer feedback. We had DevCon 1 in London just a few months back. And um, that kind of drove the process of what actually should make it into Homestead to make building decentralized apps a little bit easier. What are some of those additions? And, and you, you said there were going to be some protocol changes before. What are those protocol changes? Yeah, it's uh, really technical stuff. Um, but I can give you an example. It is, um, it's possible for contracts to call other contracts. And this is important for a lot of reasons. Um, but at the base level, sometimes you want to know who's calling the contract. And you might want to differentiate between the user invoking the initial contract at the beginning versus the direct caller of that contract. So if your contract calls another contract and that calls another contract, you're a few levels deep. How do you tell who's the user and who's the direct calling contract? And it's little changes like this that will make it a bit easier to program uh, the different app apps that are out there and kind of differentiate um, 
who or what is calling it so that it can make the proper decision. Um, so that's kind of the major change for DAP developers. Uh, I don't even know all the details of the networking protocol, um, but I'm being told that uh, once Homestead's out the door, it's going to be a lot harder to change it. So it was best to get this in now. Okay, cool. Um, this is interesting because I always thought of kind of the, uh, of in fact, speaking with Alex van der Sand a while ago, he mentioned, or we were, we were talking about how interesting it was that contracts and people were, uh, were on an equal footing in the Ethereum protocol. Mm-hmm. So why is there a need to differentiate between the two when, uh, when calling a contract? Um, that's something that probably some of the actual DAP developers could answer. Unfortunately, being like very close to the protocol and development, I haven't personally spent a lot of time developing DAPs. Um, but I know uh, there's a gentleman by the name Piper who worked on the Ethereum alarm clock. And he was, um, you know, quite outspoken about some of these needs, as were some of the other DAP developers. And my understanding is that it was in a workable situation before, but it required extra code on the part of the developer to kind of check this. And because it was so common, it was easier just to differentiate between the two in the virtual machine. So all that boilerplate code can just go away. And uh, so the big question that every, that's uh, burning on everyone's mind right now is, how far off is Homestead? <laughs> um, you know, I guess just like a few other companies in the space or organizations, we you know try not to put out hard dates uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, right now, the code uh, for all the changes for Homestead has been merged into the clients. And what I mean by that is the changes were proposed, people reviewed them, and now that code is actually part of the base uh, set of software. Uh, that doesn't mean it's ready yet but it means they're happy enough with it and it's passing the initial set of tests where we can actually take the clients, hook them up to each other, run them through various scenarios and see what the result is. And one of these scenarios might be what happens if you have uh, the three main clients connected together and two of them transition at the homestead block number and one does it too soon or does it too late. And we would like to know kind of how the software reacts in those types of situations. So that's kind of the last bit of testing that it's going through now to make sure that uh, there aren't any unforeseen problems. So let's go on to a couple of questions that this fellow, uh, I I received an email from this guy, Chris Stinson, and he had some good questions. You and myself, Taylor, we've been talking about creating educational resources, and uh, and this touches exactly on some of the things we were talking about that require some some good formalized explanations or, you know, some good educational resources. Anyway, um, so this is his email. Uh, we don't necessarily need to go into it in depth today. Um, do you have any plans to do a show that digs into understanding ether and gas? Some basic questions might be, what is the difference between ether and gas? What is the purpose behind each? How much gas does a person get for one ether? Two large and related questions might be, how do developers of dApps make sure they always have enough gas? And how do developers of dApps make sure they minimize the effect of market price swings in Ether, which ultimately affect the cost of their contracts in gas? Obviously, we as consumers like price stability, and naturally, businesses like that as well to anticipate their expenses. So we all hope that the market price of Ether will be stable so that the underlying gas price is the same too. Yeah, I think those are all very reasonable questions and concerns. Um... First and foremost, I try to convey to people 
that gas is, uh, although it's kind of a confusing name, it's really good for the analogy of a car and going on a trip. Um, so a lot of those questions actually can be answered by instead of saying needing gas for my contract, if you just simply say needing gas for my car and reread that whole message back, I think a lot of the answers will become a little more obvious. And the reason I say that is because just like when you're going on a trip in a vehicle, you're going to have to put some fuel in the vehicle to get there. You don't know exactly how much. Different gas stations are going to offer different prices for that gas, right? You kind of have to make an estimate um, and try to say, well, I know this is a good price, so this is the price I'm willing to pay. And those are similar kind of mechanisms that are available in the Ethereum network. Um, yeah, it's a little confusing, I think, at first, but once you wrap your head around the gas mechanism, uh, it becomes a lot clearer. Um, the one nice thing I will say about the current design of the system is you don't ever really have to worry about overpaying in gas. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you can pay too high of a price, but there's no real risk of filling up your tank with more gas than necessary. And the reason for that is, just like in the car situation, that gas is available for you at the end of the trip. In Ethereum, that gas isn't consumed. That excess gas is returned to you to use later on. So typically, when I'm running contracts on the main network, I will oversupply the amount of gas uh, because the you know, couple 0.2 Ether or whatever, uh, that's something that I have available to kind of supply and make sure it doesn't run out of gas. That's one situation that you really do want to avoid is running out of gas. If your contract is running and you don't have enough fuel to get there, to get to the end point, you lose all that fuel and your contract won't succeed. So for me, I'd rather err on the side of supplying too much fuel to the system and it'll be returned to me whatever's not used. So what is the... Uh... So what does gas actually do? I mean, what is, what is the, the relationship between ether and gas? Yeah, the relationship between ether and gas is pretty direct. And that is to say they're almost the same. The only difference between them is that gas is mediated by a gas per ether price. And when you go to execute a contract, you have to pay a fee for that contract. And this is where the gas mechanism comes in. It tries to prevent some situations like running infinite loops, and also helps create a more egalitarian place where everybody pays the same price for the same type of good or service, right? So if you want to add two numbers, that has a base cost of gas, and that is the same for absolutely anybody. If you want to store information, that has a base cost of gas, and that's the same for everybody. But storing information costs different than adding two numbers. And so essentially, so you pay for these things in gas, and you mm -hmm. buy gas using Ether, and you need to load a contract with Ether in order for it to automatically buy the gas that it needs to run itself. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. So you generally will send gas alongside with the transaction to initiate the contract call. But in the case where a contract can execute and run itself, for example, if the alarm clock wakes it up or you ping the contract with a message, if it needs to send a transaction itself, yeah, you'll want to load up uh, ether on that contract so that the uh, contract can actually purchase the gas and make the call it needs directly. So a lot of this can be just completely automated, so it's not, uh, it's not visible to the end user, right? I think so. Uh, we're at the early stages now, and you know Ethereum is dealing with some of the similar issues that happened in the Bitcoin space a couple of years ago with the fee market, right? 
And the question ultimately is, uh, will the price of gas fluctuate uh, such that the cost of sending a transaction is not directly tied to the value of the token that's externally traded? And putting this mechanism in allows users to submit their transactions for whatever price they want and for miners to accept whatever price they want. Now, everybody's currently kind of resting on the defaults. And perhaps when Homestead comes out, that will change a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the basics of it. Yeah, okay, cool. That's, uh, that's that explanation taken care of. This is awesome because it's a nice, concise, you know, little like piece. Yeah. Sweet. All right, well, thanks a bunch, Taylor. I look forward to another one of these updates in the not too distant future. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to answer any questions that uh, people submit to you in the meantime. So Fantastic. Hey, this is going to be a really great, uh, I think this will be a really great kind of outlet for uh for the ethereum foundation to communicate with the community yeah i uh want to do as much as i can to kind of push the information out there and allow people to kind of dig themselves into the resources there's lots to learn uh there's a homestead documentation initiative going on and we're asking for contributions from people if you know a little or a lot you maybe can learn something maybe you can help teach some others thanks taylor if you're interested in finding out more or would like to participate head over to ethereum.org. Questions should be sent to contact at etherreview.info.